So, <laughs> all right. We are in a series. Uh, we're getting near the end, two more weeks, this week and next week. And then we're heading into Advent, uh, believe it or not, uh, right after Thanksgiving. Life sucks and then you die. Really? Um, I called this one today, It's a Fallen World, Get Used to It. Let me say it a little stronger. It's a fallen world, get over it. Okay? Today is going to be, um, he's starting to come toward the end of his argument. Next week, he's going to tell you what he thinks about what we should do. But this is the most pessimistic of all the weeks. Um, and some of it's very hard to translate and make sense of, but we're going to work our way through a little section, 10 verses in Ecclesiastes to try to understand what he's saying. Now, remember the message of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing in life that can give sustainable meaning to life. Nothing. Okay? Nothing in life can give sustainable meaning to life, at least without the Lord. So we've asked the question each week, what's wrong? You know, what's wrong with our thinking? Um, because you read Ecclesiastes. It's like when I started Leviticus. I said, we're going to read Leviticus. And I had a whole bunch of you come up and say, have you actually read Leviticus? <laughs> so I said, uh, we're going to study Ecclesiastes. And I had the same response. Ecclesiastes? Really? Because it's so pessimistic or so it looks. I think what's wrong is that we've been taught to look at life in the wrong way. That's what's wrong. We've been taught to evaluate, analyze, look at everything around us in the wrong way. Now, remember, the reason why I chose Ecclesiastes is because I'm watching our church uh, trying to manage the craziness of this world. It feels to me like it's crazier than it's been in my lifetime. And um, it's just all over the map, everybody, everything from pandemic to politics. And it's all over, you guys are all over the map. And I thought, well, let's look at a, ver a book that deals with craziness and deals with the realities of the world. So you could begin to, not begin, you could continue to work on centering your perspective and focus and really thinking through where does true significance come from? And it's not here. It's simply not here. There's nothing in life, in this life, that can give sustainable meaning to life. Sustainable meaning, it goes on and on and on. So it's a fallen world. Get used to it. Now, it's very common to think that the scriptures don't talk about politics, uh, but that is not true. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 10. Okay, I think you'll really like this. Ecclesiastes 10. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> this has nothing to do. I just couldn't resist. You guys are too fun. <laughs> this has nothing to do with politics. What he's doing is he's saying that truth can be looked at from two different perspectives. You see, wisdom and folly go in two different directions. That's what he's saying. It goes in two different directions. That's actually the argument of Proverbs. Proverbs uses a very different imagery, but it's the same message that uh, he, uh, the author of Proverbs uses two women. You have uh, a lady, Lady Wisdom, and you have a prostitute named Folly. And they're two different pathways, and you get to choose which one you're on. And the Lady, uh, I mean, uh, Dame Folly, the prostitute, she promises, uh, she promises excitement and fun. And guess what? She delivers. One of the things I've said to the teens over the years uh, is that sin is fun. If it wasn't fun, you wouldn't do it. Let's just be honest about it, okay? But like the Bible says, sweet in the mouth, sour in the stomach. No one that starts out drinking too much ends up wanting, once, ends up wanting to be an alcoholic, okay? No one that starts flirting with a, 
a different uh, person than their spouse, uh, once they get into an extramarital affair, they don't want to be there. It's prison for them. And so this pathway, foolishness or sin or folly, is, uh, in, in fact, it's, it's enticing. It's fun. It just doesn't end up where you want it to go. In contrast, Lady Wisdom, to follow the path of wisdom is a lot longer it's like you've got to put a lot of money in the bank over a long period of time before it begins to really generate uh, a lot of cash. It takes a while. And so this one is a slower process, but the joy that you begin to feel is much deeper because it's authentic, it's real, it's genuine. So he's basically making the argument here in verse 2 that they go in two different directions. He just said that um, in chapter 9, at the end of that chapter, that the quiet words of the wise are to be heeded. Verse 17, the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Boy, that's so true. For those of you that still have children at home, remember that. As Paul says later on in the Corinthian epistles, that bad company corrupts good morals. Doesn't take much. It really doesn't. The best gift you can give your children is to get them in good environments, very good environments. It's fascinating. One of the ministries, and I've talked to several of the parents about this, one of the ministries that I have over the years is dealing with older people here as well as before I came here. And uh, many of them have the same, the same stories. They, uh, I don't know what to do. My children are grown. They're not walking with the Lord. Uh, I think most of you know the statistics. Um, when I grew up, 95, uh, 90% of the people in church the youth stayed in church. Today, it's uh, half. It's 5%. That's all it is. And declining steadily. When I got here, it was uh, 10%. Now it's down to 5%. And it's declining every every year. 48% of the people, the kids that, that uh, finished middle school are already done with the church. They just go now because their parents make them. And so we got a real epidemic, a true epidemic, pandemic on our hands that we have to resolve we have to take care of here. One of the questions I've asked a lot of these older people over the years is tell me the values of your family when the kids grow up. Sports is almost always a value, more than church. So well, you, I can't help you. That was a value you taught your children. I can talk to you about how to have conversations with your adult children, but I can't change them. Those values are set. That's now beyond your capacity. That's up to the Lord. Your influence is past when those kids are gone. And so that's why I encourage our kids. I mean, our parents, get your kids here. You want that to be a value? Then get them here. And he's going to move into some of this sort of stuff here. And yet, he says this, and it sounds very good, but his conclusions, he just finished in chapter 9, one of the most pessimistic sections in the book. His conclusions are very pessimistic. There's one fate that awaits all of us, death. We will die. Okay? And he's going to jump into that pretty powerfully. But what does he mean by that? So now we're going to work our way through chapter 9 for 10 verses and talk about him because I want you to see his argument and how it begins to unfold. So the very first thing he says is people do not, do not automatically get what they deserve. Verse 1 of chapter 9. So I, re- I reflected on all of this and what he's talking about all of this is everything we've been covering in the book. We haven't covered every verse, but we've covered sections all the way through. I reflected on all of this and everything that he's seen, and I concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. Wow. 
No one knows whether love or hate awaits them. You see, people may get the opposite of what they deserve. He's argued that all the way through. His life study of humanity was very simple. Sometimes the righteous get a bad deal. And sometimes the sinners get a good deal. And he's wrestling with that all the way through. Now we have a lot more information as it unfolds. And so you've heard me say, here's my answer to that. The greatest gift God has given all of us is adversity. That's why James says, count it joy when you encounter trials of any kind. You know, in everything, give thanks. First Thessalonians, for this is God's will for you. Why? Can you imagine Adam and Eve when they sinned and they were expelled from the garden if he just started blessing them? They wouldn't need God. And so for the Christian, adversity plays a, a very significant and vital role. That's what draws us back to the Lord. Over all the years that I've been working with Christians, I have noticed that the persons who have the deepest hunger for the Lord are typically the ones that are going through really hard times. Okay? So adversity is a gift from the Lord to draw us to him. But for the unbeliever, that doesn't work the same way. So his tendency with the unbeliever is to prosper them and bless them to show them that he is the one true God. Okay, so he does have two different ways. Does he do it all the way, all the time? No, he doesn't. But there's a pattern. I've seen it. He sees it. He talks about it. I've seen it in life. And so (coughs) people often get the opposite of what we think they deserve based on our fallen sense of justice. Okay, honestly, most of us think that I'm a pretty good Christian, so I deserve a little bit. That's really what we think. You know, we really do. Since everyone is in God's hands, there's no way to determine the outcome of their actions because God is sovereign and you get to see it and watch it and happen. In verse two, he moves on that everyone has the same fate, no matter their lifestyle. Look what he says in verse two, all share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. So everyone has the same fate, no matter what their lifestyle is. It's interesting. I didn't read the second half of the verse yet, but he's using a pair of, he's using sets of pairs to get us to an important place. Okay. So I'm going to list the good, which is the first and the bad, which is the second. You follow along. So all share a common destiny, the righteous, that's good. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean, the unclean, those who offer sacrifices, those who do not. As it is with the good, so it is with the sinful. Now, here's the last one that stuns us. As it is with those who take oaths. That's good, by the way. So with those who are afraid to take oaths. It's a puzzling verse. You really have to think about it for a little while. Um, These pairs, five pairs, leads to the conclusion that those who are afraid to take an oath are those who are hesitant or refuse to accomplish the things of God. Now, earlier he had said, be very careful and judicious how you make an oath, okay? Um, But do it. This is a lot like Revelation chapter 3 and the church of Laodicea. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's the Lord talking, by the way. 
You see, you can't ride the fence. That's not a choice that you're given. You get the baseball bat if you do that. That's the Lord's divine way of getting your attention. Many, many times over the years, um, I have seen people come to Christ, and I'm not necessarily a skeptic, although I'm a pretty good one. (laughs) But one of my thoughts is this, yeah, we'll see. Because I fully expect if you turn to Christ, life is about to get challenging and hard, not easier. Because once you do that, God is going to get your attention and start shaping you. There's no right in the fence. There isn't. That's what he's saying here. That's not good at all. So um, be very careful how you make an oath. Don't do it too hastily, but make one. That's his point. But then he goes and talks about the tragedy is that all are thoroughly sinful and death awaits everyone in verse 3. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil. There is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. You see, our lives are characterized by evil and madness. We mistakenly believe that we're pretty good compared to the people next to us, don't we? What can we all expect? Death. Think about Paul's argument in Romans 3. As it is written, and by the way, this is the largest accumulation of verses out of the Psalms in the New Testament. As as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who even seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And it goes on. There's more Psalms quoted after this. It's pretty strong language. Even Jesus said in John 2, he did not reveal himself to anyone because he knew what was in the hearts of people. God says many times in the Old Testament, I know that your hearts are sinful continuously. Uh, Jeremiah, our thoughts are evil. Here's the problem. You don't really believe it. None of us do. We think we're pretty good. Isaiah, all of your deeds, all of them are like worthless rags to me. Menstrual, rags that you use for menstruation, for cleaning, that's what they are to me. All of your deeds. This is what theologians refer to when they talk about total depravity. You are so broken completely, 100%, not 99%, 100. You are so broken. Now, people argue, well, I'm pretty good. I help people. It's like, who's the one that gives you credit? Your neighbor? Well, that's not going to help you any when you die. Your boss? Spouse? That's not going to help you any. Who's going to give you credit? God. And I just quoted you a whole bunch of verses where he says, You're about worth zero when it comes to your own endeavors. That's the result of a fall deep into sin. And if God could have destroyed us, that was one of his options. He could have ignored us and walked away. He could have just blessed us. No, what he did was he began to shape us. He began to come after us. 
and bring adversity into our lives so that we turn back to him. You know, one thing the insurance companies do get right, acts of God. Don't let random acts. God says the Deuteronomy to Israel, when you sin and I bring pestilence and disease and earthquakes into your life, maybe you'll turn back. We should remember that we serve a sovereign God and that's what he's talking about here. That is the God that we serve. And the problem is we need to truly begin to grasp it. And here's why. Um, Verse four, while you are alive, you have hope. He surprises us. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. So even when you're alive, you have hope. Really? What does that mean? Now, we tend to think of hope, obviously, in the eternal sense of the crucifixion and all of that. But he's talking about something very different here, I believe. You see, in the ancient Near East, a dog was considered a very dirty, horrible animal. Uh, We didn't have pets. This is something that comes out of our culture largely. Uh, Even, you know, I was in Nepal not too long ago walking behind a lady. And... um, uh, I'm guessing she was American, and a dog ran up, and she went down to pet it, and man, it grabbed her and just ripped her hand all to pieces, blood everywhere. And uh, and I caught up with her, and uh, we gave her something to wrap her hand in, and says, you need to get to a doctor right now, you know? So when I'm in third world countries or underdeveloped countries, and dogs come running up, which they all do, I usually do this with my hands. No lie. You know? Or I'll do this. I don't want them biting them, because I don't want rabies. Okay, that's how the ancient Near Eastern world thought of it. In contrast, the lion was considered a noble beast. So he's using some sense of sarcasm here, which he's going to explain in a minute. He's highlighting that there's hope while one is alive. But the context makes it clear that even living life is miserable, especially if you fully understand the predicament that you're in. If you understand it, the truth, your life gets very hard all of a sudden. Sometimes denial is a gift. You know, the um, childhood victims of sexual assault often struggle a lot with denial. When I was going to counseling 10 years ago, I had uh, opened up um, about being sexually abused at the age of six. And uh, somewhere along the way, I don't know where it came from, but I had a tremendous blow to my back. It's obvious that they could see it with, with my shirt off, my lower back. I have no memory of what happened. So I was talking to the counselor about that, and the counselor said, you sure you want to open that door? Some skeletons are meant to be left in the closet. You sure you want to know who did that to you? Hmm. That's a great question, isn't it? You see, counseling, a good counselor knows when to open a door and when to leave it shut. In a fallen world, sometimes denial, I believe, is a gift from the Lord. It protects us from things that are going to hurt, knowledge that will hurt us even more. And he said, you know, when the right time is there, the Holy Spirit will open the door. Just don't force it. And I'm so grateful for that. I moved on and said, yeah, I guess I'm okay not really knowing that. So he's, he's giving this somehow a sense of sarcasm But we're going to see in a minute what he really means by it, that you have hope while you're alive. And what is this hope? We have hope because even the living know that they will die, verse 5 and 6. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again 
will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Now remember that phrase, under the sun, means we're talking about here in this creation, this phase of life. Never again um, will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Once you die, you die. And so what is this hope or what's it all about? You see, after death, there's no further reward. There just isn't. The end of life represents the er end of all earthly benefits. And he's, what he's saying is at least the living can enjoy something. The dead cannot. They can enjoy something. For the dead, they can no longer experience anything from this creation, including love, hate, jealousy. So what he's arguing here is that feeling anything is better than nothing. It's better than death. Who's he talking about? Be patient. We're going to get there in just a few minutes. So once again, we're told to enjoy whatever God has given us. Verse 7, go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has always approved what you do. Later on in 10, he's going to say, money's the answer to everything. Enjoy it. Okay, what? Right? I love the country restaurant. can't buy me happiness, but it can buy me a boat. <laughs> right? He's saying, take advantage of it. He said that earlier, back in chapter, he said it many times. He said, when times are good, be happy, chapter 7. But when times are bad, consider this, God has made the one as well as the other. Here's how we think about it. I'm going to pursue happiness, and I'm going to avoid calamity. That's the wrong approach. You should enjoy both. Don't have the attitude of, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. No, look at it this way. When you get a chance to enjoy happiness, enjoy it. Enjoy it. And when you see that, that adversity coming your way, it's heading right into your life, that's the time to smile and say, okay, God, I'm game. My faith is now about to grow to a new level. I'm going to require your strength and wisdom, but I'm in. Let's do it together because you're going to grow and your faith is going to grow deeper. So um, as we will see in just a moment... This is probably marking a shift in who the author has in mind. Here's how Eugene Peterson in the message translates this verse. He says here, go, eat your food with gladness, drink your wine, all that. He says, seize life. There's that carpe diem, which we've seen all throughout here. Grab it. Every chance you get. Seize life. Eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. Oh, yes. God takes pleasure in your pleasure. But then he's going to give us a qualifying statement. Verse 8, 8 and 9. Always be clothed in white. That has to do with kind of uh, a lifestyle of enjoyment. Always anoint your head with oil. That's talking about a high, dry, dry, hot, dry desert to refresh yourself. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. And then he undercuts it. Remember what meaningless is? Hevel. A breath. That's all life is. It's a breath. That's why he says it's chasing after the wind. Here today, gone tomorrow. Nancy and I have talked several times. Uh, her job, and I've talked to others, that you have ex stressful jobs and that you have to live with. And you're full of anxiety sometimes. And it's like, you know, a good thing to do is say this. Okay, the stress I'm facing today, six months from today, is this going to be a stressor? 
No, then don't worry about it. Worry about the ones that are long-term and go on for on, on, and on. But if what you're going through today and six months today, you're not even going to remember it, then it's worth, it's a total waste of energy. That's what he means when he says meaningless. It's empty. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Okay? For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Once again, we're here on the earth. And you have to see that this is a blessing from the Lord. He didn't create the mess. We did. But he is surely the one who is sovereign and is going to make sure that he does everything within his power other than violate your free will to get you to turn back to him. And sometimes that's a baseball bat. And that's hard because we don't like it. So we naturally plan to maximize pleasure and minimize adversity and God's not going to let you do it. He's just not going to let you do it. The rewards in this life are temporary is what he's saying. Even Jesus, numerous times, he said, you know, for example, to the Pharisees, if you're going to grab your glory, go ahead. That's all you get. You have your reward in full. That's what he says. You want glory? Grab it. That's all you're going to get. Nothing waiting for you. But if instead you put others first, then there's buckets full of glory waiting So Jesus used that phrase many times. You have your reward in full. You got it. You grabbed it. You got it. But if you're willing to, if you're willing to be a servant and put others first, you can't even imagine what's coming. And so that's what he's talking about here. All the rewards in this life are temporary. Death brings everything to a stop. Everything. Paul alludes to this in 2 Corinthians 4. I love this phrase. For our light and momentary troubles. Okay, now pause. If you'd read, if we'd read the chapter before that, he's going to tell you everything he's been through. Several times beating to the point of death. Stoned, left for dead. Okay, he hiked 14,000 miles on his journeys. Robberies, uh, the mocking, the criticism, the spitting on him, all of that. He goes through all of these things. He goes, I've been without food. I've been without water. Later on, he's going to say, I've learned to be content in this. And at the end of it, he says, for all of these light and momentary troubles, that's all they are, they're meaningless, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not on what we see, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This life, Next life is eternal. Now, don't hear the opposite. I'm not saying give up, and I'm not saying don't appreciate. Do what the author of Ecclesiastes says. Enjoy the good that comes when the Lord brings it, but also enjoy the adversity when it comes to. In everything, give thanks, First Thessalonians, for this is God's will for you. That's what it says. In everything, give thanks. Enjoy life, but remember, this is not the ultimate answer to the question of meaning. So then we have verse 10. This is where we're going to end. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are all going, there is neither working 
nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. The realm of the dead, that phrase he uses there, in the realm of the dead, that's a word, a Hebrew word you've all heard, Sheol. And a lot of people, even after the first service, they had never really thought about what Sheol is. Sheol is a very interesting word. Um, Often we think of it as the underworld when you die, but that's not really what it's about. It's a word uh, that, uh, the basic word means to ask. So think of this place that God created that has this incredible appetite. I'm just waiting for the next person to die. That's really what the image is behind Sheol. It's waiting to grab every one of us. Okay, it's generally though refer, uh, reserved for those who are under God's judgment. That's his primary use. The problem is that it's used mostly in poetry, and um, it's hard to define. But we're going to try to do that. It portrays a picture of a place continually asking for more dead from the land of the living. The vast majority of you, as I just said, are poetic. So here are the things that we can say for sure about this word. Okay, first of all, you have to understand in the ancient world, they didn't have the clarity. They did believe in life with the Lord for eternity, but they didn't know how it was going to happen. That comes later on. So remember where this author is situated. He's not situated with the New Testament in his hands. So here's what he's thinking through. Here are some of the things we know about Sheol. Once there, the person cannot return. So David argued in Psalm 51 when his uh, child died after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he gets up and starts refreshing himself. And all the servants are like, what are you doing? He goes, he can't come back to me, but I can go to him. Once there, there's no returning. He, as he says here in the other places, there's no activity of work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom. Um, by the way, this word is used all throughout the Psalms and Proverbs. and There's no praising of God from Sheol. It's an empty place. It's a place over which God has absolute sovereignty. Can I pause for just a moment? Can you imagine life where maybe any little corner of existence where God was not present? I don't want that. I don't ever want to surprise God. I don't want that. One of the questions I love to ask in the classroom is, can you ever displease God? Well, yeah, every time we sin. Well, that's pretty much every day then. (laughs) Can you ever displease God? I'm going to give you two hypothetical stories. Some of you have heard the example. They're both hypothetical. Here's the first one. Uh, The police come walking in in about 30 seconds. James Howard, you're under arrest. And they put me in handcuffs, read me my rights, and haul me out. Your first thought is going to be some level of angst. What? That's our pastor. That didn't happen. No way. They got the wrong guy. So then tomorrow you all traipse down to the courthouse where I'm arraigned before the judge and they show the video. Sure enough, last night I broke into a convenience store and stole money. Now you have a whole cascading series of emotions. Some of you get angry. Some of you maybe want to show grace and mercy, but you can't believe it. Shock, loss of respect, all kinds of things that start flowing out after that. I can't believe it. That's our pastor. What was he doing? Can we trust anything he said? Okay, now here's the second scenario. 20 years ago, I was, as a young pastor, I was preaching in front of a church, and right in the middle of the sermon, <laughs> I got arrested. 
What's your first thought? What? You did? And now all of a sudden you're curious. What happened? So instead of angst or anxiety, you have anticipation. And I say, yeah, I stole 600 bucks. Well, that's not going to work in today's world uh, because the laws have all been raised. 1,500 bucks. I stole 1,500 bucks and I went to jail for six weeks. And uh, I want to tell you about um, the role that the church leadership played in the Holy Spirit to teach me about truth and faith and strength. And I stand here today, having done that, telling you, stay, stand firm. Okay? Now, the, the second scenario begins to bring into the picture a sense of joy over what God did. What's the difference in the two stories? Aspect. Okay? In the first one, you don't know the outcome. In the second one, you do. That's what he's talking about here. Isn't God truly sovereign Doesn't he know everything? On the day he saved you, didn't he know the worst sin you were going to commit? Then why are you afraid? That's why Hebrews says, when you are in trouble, approach the throne because you're going to find grace and mercy. That's what you're going to find. Okay? Because God already knows it. He can't be surprised. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. What he wants you to do is uh, what he says in Lamentations, my mercies are new every morning. Get up in the morning and say, oh, whoo, I got a clean slate. God, thanks for wiping the slate clean. Thanks for forgetting what I did yesterday. I don't want to talk about it because I might remind you. (laughs) Okay? Because you were forgiven at the cross. That's what happens. And so don't run from your sin. Don't go hide in guilt and shame and all that. Several of you, we've had coffee together, and I've said that to you. Okay, you sin. All right, let's, let's start figuring out how to get you to a better place. Forget the sin. Let's start getting you on that pathway to redemption where you experience joy. Because God already knew you can't surprise him. I don't want to serve a God that I can surprise. Here's what I think actually happens. He's sitting here, and of course, I know Christ is at his right hand. That means God's left-handed, by the way, in case you were wondering. So he looks over and he goes, Howard's going to do it. <laughs> yeah, he sure is. And so sure enough, he does it and they laugh and they say, okay, now how are we going to help him? So for those of you that have had several children, by the time you get to the youngest child, you're familiar with what I'm talking about. Nancy and I with our youngest child more than once said, he's going to do it. <laughs> you know, nothing new under the sun, right? He's going to do it too, except now we know how to help him. Now we're not anxious anymore, not near as much. That's why grandparents have such long patience. It's going to be okay. Okay? So we can, in fact, my son at one point said, I can't get away with anything. We said, nope, you can't. (laughs) You're right. And so this is a place of, over which God has absolute sovereignty. No one can escape God, even in Sheol, because he's the one who decides to send people there. He made it. Okay. The last principle. And this is the one that unlocks the whole book. In the Old Testament, both the righteous and the wicked go down to Sheol, but the righteous are rescued immediately. Sheol has no lasting hold upon us because God will, from his perspective, has, from our perspective, ransomed us. 
The wicked remain. We do not. So he's arguing that life is just a breath. So the question I want to leave you with, a couple of thoughts. Let me just summarize where we've come in this study. Then I'll leave you with a question. Ecclesiastes pushes us toward a resurrection theology in that our eternal hope, oh, we enjoy life here, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we don't. But our eternal hope, wisdom, justice. Did you realize we're never going to have justice? Never going to have it. It doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter. Okay? Do we wear masks? Do we not wear masks? Do we put a wall up? Do we not put a wall up? Do we, you know, not accept legal limits? Do we accept them? I don't know. Okay, all I can tell you is that we're never going to agree. We're never going to have true justice. That'll come in eternity. Remember that, the new heavens and the new earth. Second principle, adversity is a gift. Accept it, welcome it, love it. Okay, give thanks when it comes and be, give thanks when it's gone. Because <laughs> God brings it in, takes it right out. Third principle, when given control, use it wisely. Remember that both the good and the bad are from the Lord. When he gives you a little bit of control, don't take glory. Don't grab the glory. Look what I did. I built this company. No, you didn't. God let you do it. Just be humble about it. And finally, the world has fallen. Get over it. That's the world we live in. In the midst of all that's happening, everything that's happening, rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Be anxious for nothing, Paul says in Philippians 4. So here is the question. Where are you, where are you placing your hope? Are you placing your hope in the Lord? Or a particular political party? Or a vaccine? Or a certain president? A policy? Where are you placing your hope? That's your choice. I can only answer it for me. I can't answer it for you. Father, thank you for being a God who loves us so much that you create a challenging life for us so that we will continually turn back to you. Um, We just are very grateful for that and for giving us the moments of good to offset the moments of trials and adversity. Thank you for creating both and for being that kind of God. I just am so glad that nothing happens by chance. I'm so glad that you are in control. In your son's name, we pray. Amen.